0: You're listening to the Racer to Racer podcast presented by Race 92. Race 92 is a vintage-inspired racing apparel brand specializing in celebrating vintage race culture and adapting to motorsports today. Check out race92.com to see the many different shirts we offer. I'm your co-host, Aaron McTier, other co-host. You may have seen him walking out of great clips with a big old smile on his face. You've probably seen him at a dirt track. He is Scott Bowie. Hey, Scott, how are you?
1: Good, Aaron. How are you?
0: I'm doing great. we just had a fantastic interview so, yes. so, and we're laughing, and when you realize who it is, you'll realize that we're laughing because this man is a very funny man um you know man with a lot of perseverance, and um yeah, I think everyone will definitely enjoy that one and we'll definitely be excited to release it for sure,
1: yeah, uh it's uh yeah there's there's some good stuff in there, uh so personal such a good guy um i mean i there's i can't say enough i mean any of the words i'm gonna come up with aren't aren't gonna do it justice so uh this they'll probably be out in two three weeks yeah
0: yeah probably around there but before we get before we talk anymore i do want to say our show today is a great show our guest is the one the only david hops what a great guy um before we start talking about david I do want to thank everyone for um, for watching our video so far for listening to the podcast. If you haven't already, make sure you hit that like button. If you're watching on YouTube, make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel as well. as Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, anywhere else our podcast is found. Please support us. We greatly appreciate it. Um, And yeah, thanks everyone for listening and hope you continue to listen. And I tell you what, we have some great ones um, that we have recorded already um that we have not yet released um that are definitely will be worth checking out definitely some of the you know the best and some of the biggest ones we've had yet
1: yeah it's been uh man these last couple weeks have just been again man and just a pleasure and an honor to have some of these people talk to us or all of them actually i shouldn't say some Any, any person that's ever been on this show it's an honor and uh man i just uh yeah it's just been great i i just i don't have any words i it's uh i'm just very lucky to be able to do what i do and do something i like and um it's been so fun and, and people are watching and um i think people are going to go back and discover some of the ones the more people yeah. we get watching they're going to go back and watch some of these other ones that don't have a ton of views yet and, and there's some real gold in those too so uh man i just it's yeah it's just been great
0: i was just gonna say sorry spike john um, scott didn't enjoy talking to you
1: no yeah spike <laughs> i've known you for a long time spike the
0: uh no and spike
1: spike's not even spike's probably not even listening to us no spike probably not <laughs> um jagger might be uh jagger maybe but uh no i mean, it's just been an honor to talk to everyone and, absolutely uh,
0: yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's definitely been a blast. Well, do, do we have any racing news? I mean, it's it was pretty much off week for pretty much every series, right?
1: Yeah, uh, Christopher Bell picked up uh, an All-Star Circuit of Champions win over the weekend. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, he's openly talking about the reason why he's going back and running these sprint cars is, you know, to stay in better form. Uh, he was driving uh, the Bulldog Kevin Swindell's car. Uh, and Darren Pippen's been doing a great job in that car too. Um, uh, but Christopher, I think, I think it's maybe fourth, fifth race, but it was second or third night in a row they had run and Christopher really picked up the pace. And, uh, won last night or Saturday night, I guess, out in Missouri. Or I think, sorry, I don't know. I, my, my nights are all screwed up, but, uh, the new sacks. Running Sprint Week, they were rained out on Friday at Gas City. So they're actually at Gas City tonight. Um, they ran Kokomo. It was a rain-shortened race that Justin Grant won. Uh, last night, Logan Seavey picked up a big win at uh, Lawrenceburg. So uh, Indiana's Sprint Week is in, is in full swing, and it is hot, hot, hot. <laughs> in Indiana right now, these poor teams are just melting out there uh but that's about really the only racing really going on at the moment right well
0: i mean i, I guess we can just jump right into david hops and um i will tell you this i mean david hops great guy um we're definitely going to have him back on sometime he he has told me that you know whenever we want to have him back on he's more than happy to do that so we definitely will <clears throat> but you know he i mean this is a man that drove so many in so many different you know series so many different types of cars. And he got to drive, you know, and he got to drive against and, you know, like a Lamar, he got to drive with a lot of the, you know, greatest race car drivers of all time. So it's really cool, you know, hearing his stories Um, and even, you know, he had a pretty amazing career even outside of racing. I mean, when you look at his broadcasting career um, for me, obviously, I never got to see him, you know, do a NASCAR race, um, but he was the commentator for what a lot of people call the biggest NASCAR race of all time.
1: Yeah, and he, he went into that a little bit, and then hopefully, when we have him on in the future. We'll really get into his broadcasting more. Uh, what can you say about David Hobbs? Uh, funny guy, um, will speak his opinion. Uh, he just—I mean, David Hobbs is David Hobbs, and, and you'll see in our uh, in our talk with him. He's actually on the front porch of his house of a uh, road America. People Uh, were driving by, honking. People were driving by, honking. He's uh, uh, he was waiting for friends to show up, and we had to cut the interview a little short because his friends showed up. So, and uh, I wouldn't have it any other way. Uh, That's David Hobbs, and uh, yeah. So anyway, he he uh, just—it's a great time. It's a good interview, and uh, I'm looking forward to the next one.
0: Yeah, and he—if um, anyone is in the Wisconsin area and you are looking for a new vehicle, David Hobbs Honda. Definitely that's right. Give them a call. If
1: you want a Honda?
0: Go get it from David Hobbs. But I mean, really, for me, like the the area I grew up in, um, he he was a commentator for Speed Vision for Formula One, and that's really how I remember David Hobbs. I just remember waking up on a Sunday morning, and just hearing his voice, and I knew what was on. Right. And that was just a very iconic voice for me. So definitely, really cool to be able to sit down and you know really talk to him.
1: Um, so few, so few yeah. people uh, can transcend their sport. Um, and what I mean by that is, can can you know be a racer, you know, be a driver such as him, and then be equally known as a commentator later on. Because they're so different. I think uh, Dale Jr. has done a great job and uh, there's been a few, you know, Ned Jarrett did a great job when he did. Um, and obviously I'm cherry picking names here, but, uh, but it's so hard because so many have tried and it's, it's not easy. And, uh, I think that it just speaks to his personality. Yep. Great personality.
0: And also his voice is in, um, one of the cars movies. I think he's I, David, David Hubscap.
1: Is that what it is? Yeah. I didn't know that.
0: Yep. So, um, yeah, well, I think, um, We'll go ahead and jump into the interview. Yeah,
1: everybody, please enjoy.
0: Our guest today drove in Formula One, won his class twice in 24 hours of Le Mans, and later competed in 4 Indy 500s. He is also a legendary TV announcer. We are joined by David Hobbs. Hey, David, how are you?
2: I'm very good. Thank you very much, Aaron. And I really like that word, legendary. It's something I think (laughs) about all the time.
0: (laughs) Well, no, it's funny. Like whenever I, when I, whenever I hear the name David Hobbs, I think of, um, like, what I remember in the mid two thousands, I used to watch Formula One all the time, and I knew Formula One was on if I could hear your voice.
2: Well, there you go. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, I had a long racing career, thirty odd years, and um, about two thirds of the way through, I started doing the TV work for CBS. And I raced and did TV for, gosh, I don't know, well, about, um, well, 13 years. And then um, gave up the racing and just did TV for another another 20-odd years. So um, quite a career in a lot of ways. Uh, Never made enough money. Um, (laughs) Legendary by name, but not by bank account, uh, unfortunately. But uh, can't complain, really. Um, Obviously, I was extremely lucky. You know, and I think that probably of the people I started with, probably 25% of them at least were killed right. racing. Uh, and I wasn't even hurt. To which our friend <laughs> Brian Redman says, well, in that case, you weren't going fast enough. So, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'll take his word for it. So but, how, um,
0: how old were you when you first got interested in racing?
2: Well, Unlike today, where kids start go karting when they're about seven, like like Fernando Alonso, I mean, he is a a national champion at go karting uh, within, and he's still not he's still probably in single digits. You know, he's probably not even ten yet. In my day, yeah, we're going back sixty years here, and go karting was a thing of the future. Um, I, I was, uh, I actually was a, when I was a teenager, I, I was quite good at tennis. And I liked tennis and I played a lot of tennis and a friend of mine got a motorbike and I was standing at the side of the road and he just rode off on this motorbike. I thought, boy, that's what hmm. I got to do. And, uh, my dad bought me a scooter, a Lambretta scooter which I used to ride around absolutely flat out uh, with my girlfriend on the back. And um, after about a year, I thought, this this isn't going to cut it. So I swapped it for a, an old Triumph Speed Twin, which uh, was a much more powerful motorbike. I mean, it had like 50 horsepower back in 1952 when it was built. Uh, Unlike today's motorbikes, which you go well in excess of hundred horsepower, you know. So, but it was it was pretty good, and um, I had always admired uh, Sterling Moss. He was a big hero of mine. I mean, he was fantastic, right? Because he was young and he was fast. He won a lot of races, but he's very charismatic. Um, one of the first actual professional race drivers, I imagine. Really, um, you know, everybody over here. Because um, I didn't know anything about American racing then, I'm all this time I'm living in England, and um, but to me, Sterling was the uh, was a tremendous uh, professional, and he was very charismatic, and he always always hit the headlines. But typical newspapers, you know, it was always Moss crashes or someone's killed in a race that Moss is in, and, and then oh, by the way, Sterling Moss won. Um, it was all a bit downbeat. They were, you know, racing wasn't uh, very popular in the news in those days. There was no TV um, and very little radio coverage. Races like Le Mans would have radio coverage. Um, my first goal really was to win Le Mans. So I did it 20 times in the end. And probably I've done it more times than anybody else without actually winning it. Um, although my very first attempt, I did win the class. Um, it's actually one of my best, my best ever Le Mans. My first Le Mans in 1962. But um, so that's um, so my thirst for speed became apparent when I was a teenager riding this motorbike. Um, I would always been competitive. I was an athlete at school. You know, I, I did a bit of everything: track and field, played cricket, played soccer, captain of cricket, captain the school um academically i was not uh very bright uh certainly wasn't very hard working uh much to my mum's disgust but there it is um so uh, so i got going on this motorbike and i thought i I think i'll race i went to a race at a place called Maori park i thought yeah i think i'll i think i'll race so I thought about racing the bike. Then I had second thoughts. So no one. So I raced my mum's car, um, which was a 1952 Morris Oxford, about that's un a machine you could ever find. Um, I was lucky, as much as my dad was a an engineer. Uh, is an engineering inventor, and he had invented an automatic transmission, and. Uh, This transmission was well ahead of its time. It was a four-speed, fully um, hydraulically operated mechanical clutch, so it didn't have a fluid flywheel, which everything else did in those days. So they were only useful, or only could be used on big cars, anything above about three litre. Anything below that, they were hopeless, because they soaked up so much horsepower. And his gearbox didn't do that. Um, And he had a test bed, but well, he had a, a, a B series. <laughs> all this is going to be foreign language to for all your listeners because um, it was kind of a. Dad had a little uh, workshop, about a 5,000 square foot workshop with a pit, not a, not a lift, a pit, so they could work up the gearboxes on these cars. And mum's car was fitted with one of his transmissions to my software. Uh, anyway, I changed the engine and put an overhead valve engine in because it came with a side valve. And I put an overhead engine, and I bought an MGB manifold. And I was working at Daimler as an apprentice. So I somehow found in my lunch bag a couple of, <laughs> a, a couple of SU carburettors. How on earth did they get it? Anyway, now they're here. I better use them. And I, I suppose it gave my lunch. maybe Maybe 70 horsepower. And off I set for my first race with my friend Tony Barrett. He was from school. And uh, of course, the car blew up. Um, and I had entered it as a sedan car, what, what we called in England a saloon car. Because when I got there, the scrutineer, the tech inspector said, whoa, 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 you've got a automatic transmission here. You can't race in a sedan. We're going to put you in the unlimited sports car class. <laughs> well, shit, I mean... Uh, XK120s, Austin Healey 3000s, TR2s, Lotus elite So, needless to say, I was running last um, <laughs> and finished last. Um, I should have known then that it was a a bit of a dodgy sport, um, but I persisted. But that's how I started, and that was in May, May the 13th, I think it was, 1959 when your parents probably weren't even born, let alone you.
1: (laughs) Well, my parents were. My parents definitely were born by then, but... Yeah, my parents were not. (laughs) Close.
2: There you go. 61 (laughs) and 63, so close. Wow. Yeah. Well, my kids were born in 62 and 64. Uh, Good Lord. Aaron, don't embarrass me. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Nope. So I raced that car, uh, race. I mean, definitely quotes. I actually won a sprint, what you'd call a drag race, at, a, at an airfield about 40 miles from where we lived. What I'd do is cause everybody else had, you know, rev it up and then in first gear then drop the clutch. Dad's gearbox was either fully automatic or you could manually override every gear. So I would just rev it up. You know, in neutral, and then stick it in the first, and it would be just like dropping the clutch. Anyway, I won the sprint to my absolute astonishment. Um, then I, uh, then in the, the following year, 1960, I persuaded my dad to let me race his XK 140. Well, because I knew nothing about racing, so I had no suspension. I, and I didn't put race. I raced both on road tires. I raced on Michelin X. Michelin X tires. Which were the very first radials. Well, anyway, on the last lap of my first event in Dad's car, I slid off the road and it slid up this earth bank and flipped over. Which um, didn't go down too well with Dad. Um, <laughs> but my girlfriend was with me. And... Um, It had uh, damaged the roof uh, and it sort of made it look a bit tatty. But unfortunately, on the way home, well, it was still drivable. And on the way home, because I drove these cars, obviously, to and from the racetrack, there was no question of a trailer or anything like that, uh, the bloody hood opened. Well, if you know those old XK120s and XK140s, it's a very long hood. So it it wrapped itself over the windshield. So we managed to straighten this thing, bang it shut. and We tied it shut with her bra uh, to tie it (laughs) up so so it wouldn't come up again. Um, um, As I say, I worked at Jag. By then I was a Jaguar apprentice because Daimler had been bought by Jaguar. And um, there was a guy called Pat, who was an Irishman who who worked in the paint shop. And uh, I took him to his home in a little place called Daventry and he bashed out all the dents and he resprayed it for me. Um, well the only trouble was that he had to do all this work after work and this, this accident happened in like April and so he sprayed it in May, which is spring in England like it is here. Um, but by the time he got over work and he had his little shed at the bottom of his garden which is where he worked on the car. By the time he got home from work, it was evening and um, the air had become much more humid. So when he sprayed it, it was the same colour as the original, but it came out matte. (laughs) Came out as a matte finish, which it always (laughs) was for the rest of its life as a a matte finish, (laughs) which, of course, these days is very trendy. Right, I was going to say (laughs) it's way
1: ahead of its time.
2: Way ahead of its time, but it wasn't a smooth matte finish like they are now. It It was a slightly abrasive matte finish. No, so, but I uh, I modified that a good bit. I had a it had a C type head on it anyway, so I bought some another set of carburetors, um, put a couple of anti-tramp brackets on the back axle so that it wouldn't judder like hell. When I dropped it into first gear, um, and I put disc brakes on it because it came with drum brakes. I put disc brakes on it, and I actually won some races in that. Um, so that car kind of put me on the map.
1: Now, how did Dad take? How did Dad take this car being torn up like this?
2: Well, actually, he was very good about it. He sort of said, "I rang him up to tell him from the racetrack." He said, "I know. I saw it on the evening news." Great. <laughs> 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 right. uh, basically, he said, "Well, you broke it, you fix it." Well, as I say, old Patty fixed it uh, badly, um, but then it became quite a well-known car and uh gosh we sold it for peanuts we took the we took his automatic gearbox out and sold the, the rest of the car for about 150 quid that car now is worth about 300,000. but yeah hey. so um but dad's company meanwhile had had some shareholder interest from another company who wanted to produce his gearbox in in mass and Ford had shown a lot of interest in, in, in using the gearbox. Ford of England on the Cortina and the Corsair, uh, which were the real current, very big sellers in England at that time. Um, unfortunately, it came to know uh, it didn't work out. But in the meantime, Dad and his <laughs> board of directors <coughs> didn't think it'd be a bad idea to buy me a Lotus Elite and f- put the automatic in it. so the Lotus Elite only had an 1,100cc engine this was a perfect way to demonstrate that the um that his gearbox worked well on a, on a small engine car and we did a couple of races didn't do very well and a guy called Henry Lee who used to be who used to work at Lotus spotted me at Mallory Park back at Mallory Park here. Uh, and he said I can come on board and give you guys some you know, some good tips because I worked at Lotus. I know all about Lotus Leaf. So he came on board, we lightened the car, we took all the interior out, we took all the glass out the windows, put first place windows. We wanted Barani wheels, but they were too expensive. So we just used Dunlop wire wheels. Of course, I had racing tires on it by now. <laughs> um, of course, after I crashed Dad's Jag, I went to Dunlop, which was not far away in Birmingham, and uh, saw their competition manager, and he sold me a set of racing tires pretty, re- I mean, he sold them very cheap. And of course, I used them on the road, which is always a bit hairy, but um, then, um, but of course they weren't slicks, you know, they, the Dunlop R5s had thread, you know, so they were good at wet or dry, you didn't change tyres, just had newer tyres if, if you had them. And then the, the low-slip, and in the end, um, we got that running very well, and we won 14 out of 18 starts in that car in 1961, including Winning the class at the Nurburgring thousand kilometers in Germany with my friend Bill Pinkney, who uh, was racing a Lotus Eleven, and we were big pals from back in week's year together. Um, so he drove me, and uh, we won the class, um, which was pretty impressive. Uh, we felt very proud of ourselves on the stand there in uh, Germany with those great big laurel wreath, you know, because in those days you wore. And uh, they're playing the old uh, God Save the Queen. <laughs> uh, we felt very proud of ourselves. And it'd been a good effort because, again, <laughs> when we got there, <clears throat> one of our friendly competitors, who I'd beaten the week before at Brands Hatch in England, and we flew the car over the channel on a thing called uh, Silver Silver uh, Airlie. And uh, we towed it. You're not far from the Nürburgring, you know, the thing about Europe, is everything so close together. I mean, the Nürburgring, to me, seemed like light years away, but in actual fact, it was three quarters of a day's drive. You know, once you <laughs> got off, once you got off the ferry at Calais, I mean, Belgium was 80 miles, drove across Belgium, which is another 80. Then you're in Germany, you drove through the Eiffel Mountains, another 80 or 60 miles, 80 or 90 miles, and there you were there at the track which was pretty daunting the first day we got there. I mean, shit, it was, I mean, that thing's 14 and a half miles long, 175 turns. But what I And I knew that. I knew it had 175 turns. But I had no idea it'd be so undulating. I mean, this thing went up and down. Every corner was either going up a hill, going down a hill, at the bottom of a hill, or on the top of a hill. It was really pretty... But we learned it very quickly, because, you know, in our of League, we... Our laps would take us like 10, 10 or 12 minutes. Um, so, and, you know, we had limited resources, so we couldn't just practice all day. I mean, the practice session was probably five hours long. Well, in five hours, by the time you do some work on the car, and it takes each of you a quarter of an hour to get around there, you know, you don't get many laps before the race The race itself was a thousand kilometers, 600 miles, 625 miles. And it was only 44 laps. <clears throat> so a bit different to last week at the Osterite ring where, you know, the lap was a minute and seven seconds and it was only about two miles around the track, so. <laughs> um, anyway, we won the class. Um, and when we got there, I'm in the paddock, which was pre-war the paddock was built. So it was cobbles, not exactly what you'd call a level setup base. And it was like a horse stable, like a something out of *Son of Frankenstein*. Really, you know, all gables and big, big roofs and very, right. very old. <laughs> um, and over the tannoy, I said, "Acton Farlarp, Acton Fire farla, my hair come to the office, please, come to the office, minute." So off we go to the office. And there's this German guy sitting there, and he's uh, lederhosen and he says, "Uh." Hey, Hobbs. Yeah, well, your car, your car has an automatic uh, retriever, yeah? I said, if you need an automatic gearbox, yes. Well, I am sorry to tell you but one of your competitors has protested you, said you should not be in the up to 1300cc GT class. Oh, because your car is not homologated. So we are going to put you in the sports car class up to 1600 cc which of course we had absolutely no hope of winning but there weren't many cars in it and uh an rs the rsk was the hot car down 1600 porsche rsk anyway the the one leading on the last lap he dropped in the ditch so we won um <laughs> The good thing about it was the Germans were very methodical, as you know. Uh, still not quite sure how we won the war, but we did. Um, they had a sliding scale of prize money. Well, sixteen hundred cc sports car won a lot more than thirteen hundred cc GT cars. So we won about four times the prize money. If you want to win, so that was good.
1: <laughs> did you thank your competitor for uh, I did. protesting?
2: Yeah, figured that uh, Yeah, he was a pillar. Um <laughs> But, um, yeah, so... And that was really, I mean... So uh, that was the start of my real successful stuff, was in the Lotus Elite. Um, and my career just sort of went from there. Because in those days, you know, it, this Elite. I mean, it cost 1,500 quid. Which in its day, I know that inflation, everything else, you know, everything is. But I mean, average income's up like 100% from those days. Average racing cars, as average racing costs up about 3,000%. It, it just It's just got exponentially greater and greater rates. So I got in. I'm one of the last sort of guys that got in as an amateur and uh, managed to... um to stay in there, I, I never had to pay for a drive. I never had to find. I never had to find sponsorship. Um, I was always sponsored, and I was paid to drive. Then um, the year after I drove Miley, I finished my apprenticeship. And the managing director of Jaguar, where I was now an apprentice, was a big fan of mine. And he was Lofty England, and Lofty England had been the manager, the, the racing manager, when Jaguar won Le Mans in 1955 and 56. He was now elevated as the managing director of the whole company. And he was quite a fan of mine, because um, he often used to be the, uh, the clerk, clerk of the course, we call him, you call him race director at Silverson, when I when I raced there. Um, and he liked the way I raced, Said, you know, he said, you race well. I like the way you race. You, you, you keep pushing and you you, you do well in, in racing. I like that. I like that a lot, you know. So he got me a drive with a guy called Peter Berry, who had a, low, had a, a Jaguar E-Type XKE and a 3.8 Mark II sedan, which Bruce McLaren had driven the year before for this guy. And our very first race was he was invited to do the continental three-hour at Daytona, so my first race for Peter Berry was the three-hour, the very first race they had at Daytona at the road course. Um, unfortunately, I uh, I only did about half an hour, and the bloody fuel pump broke. But Colin Chapman, who ran Lotus, was was Lotus could see the advantage of a, of a manual, of an automatic shift in Formula One. So he asked us, he, he asked my dad, if he could borrow my load to leave for Jimmy Clark to drive at Daytona, which he did. Because to get to Daytona in those days from England was a bit different from today. You had to fly to New York. right. Um, I think you could probably fly to Sanford in Orlando but I don't we certainly did we drove down from New York to Daytona and of course we drove down on US-1 there was no I-95 then so we must have got stopped for speeding about eight times and Jimmy Clark said hey, I'm getting fed up i put my hands on the fucking roof so there's uh, <laughs> <laughs> all these state troopers all over there you know sharply pressed suit, shirts and all that. And know, sort of, um, what's it? The bear hat, you know. Um, and I shared a room with Jimmy Clark in um, in Daytona, a place called the Carousel Motel, which is gone now. And uh, I was very impressed with Jimmy because the week before that, he'd been racing Formula One in South Africa and he'd beaten my all time hero, Sterling Nance, also in a Lotus. So I thought this guy must know what he's doing. So he drove Miley, I drove the SKE, um, and he was leading his class by miles. Um, unfortunately, when he came, he through one and only fuel stop. The blooming thing wouldn't start. It wouldn't, the the, 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 the um, starter got overheated, and it wouldn't. It wouldn't start the bloody engine. So he was out too. So, um, but we both stayed on. Bill France was very keen on having Europeans at Daytona. I mean, he wanted to make Daytona, Daytona International Speedway, he wanted to make it a real international track. So he asked us to stay on for the 500, which was like two weeks later. So we did. Well, I did. And he got us a drive with Holman and Moody in in a Ford Galaxy. Jimmy Clark and I both drove this Ford Galaxy. Well, I mean, I averaged like 150 mile an hour. Well, because I i had hardly ever been 150 mile an hour before, because this, the old Low Elite was good for about 120 down the straight with, with a bit of a downhill slope and a bit of a wind tailwind. But So that was a bit alarming. Well, luckily, Dan Gurney, who had won the three-hour race, was also lurking about, and they asked him to drive it in the end. So that was good. But I did stay and watch it. Um, so I watched the Daytona 500 in 1962, which I think was won by Fireball Roberts, I'm not sure. But in the two weeks between the 24 hour, the three out and the 500, um, Fireball Roberts sort of took me under his wing. And I spent quite a bit of time with him, um, him and his girlfriend, Judy. And uh, we used to go out drinking quite a bit, uh, and one night coming home at about two o'clock, we stopped on the corner of Beach Street and Volusia Avenue. And to the car radio, Judy and I had a dance in the square at two o'clock in the morning because there wasn't a lot of traffic around there. So but it was it was all experience. Um, unfortunately, the guy that owned the car, my car, the E-type and Jack, about half of his cars were not very compared to my main competitors, which was a uh, a Keep Endeavour, which is run by a guy called um, uh, Tommy Sopwith, who was grandson of Sopwith planes, you know, the World War One mm-hmm. tw- twin wing planes, at Sopwith camel. He was his grandson, and he was very wealthy. And he ran a really good car from Michael Parks and Sterling. <clears throat> and the other guy that was good was a chap called John Coombs, who was the Jaguar dealer in a little place called Guildford in England. And he used to run Graham Hill and Jack Sears. Well, when I drove his car, the first time I drove it, it was obviously we were way outclassed by these other guys. So I got him. I persuaded, because it turned out our mechanic was a real amateur weekend guy. He wasn't a real mechanic. So it was a bit, uns- it was a shame, because Lofty would have gone to a lot of trouble to get me in this car. And I really appreciated it and I was looking forward to a good year because I'm racing against, you know, some of the top drivers in the world. People like Graham Hill, Bruce McClown, Michael right. Park, some chap called Sterling Moss. Um, and the car was not very successful. We gradually got in, I gradually got in to spend a bit more money on the car. We lightened it or we took it all. I mean, it had all the interior Everybody else got no interior and, you know, so. We did all that, and then he went flying. And he got totally bitten by the flying bug. bug. So, about, two, about halfway through the year, he just quit racing altogether and went flying. So, he bought himself an airplane and went floppy. So, that left me at a bit of a loose end. Um, and uh, Team Elite, who were uh, a, a, the offshoot of the factory, they had a team uh, owned by a guy called um, uh, uh, Hunt. Uh, and um, he uh, asked me to drive at Le Mans. They had three cars at Le Mans, three elites. And yet again, like my first trip to the Nurburgring, ring, my first trip to Le Mans was incredibly successful. I drove with Australian Frank Gardner, who was one of the funniest guys you'll ever meet. And he and I drove in the 24 hour and we won the class we win the we won the index of thermal efficiency and we were the we were eighth overall which is a pretty stout effort
0: yeah
2: and um so that was so that was a good feeling for the guy that that had um, given up and then that year I did a bit of this a bit of that I drove back at the Nürburgring with Richard Atwood
1: Mm
2: And Richard Atwood, of course, was a, was an apprentice with me at JAG. And he was a racing driver. He, But he, his dad, he had a lot of money, Richard. So his dad bought him a proper Formula Junior car. So And he had a trailer and he had a mechanic. And we had two mechanics. <clears throat> and they had a trailer and all sorts of stuff. Um, and he and I are still very, very close buddies. And um, we went off to do the Nürburgring again. Unfortunately, we had a mechanical issue. I can't remember what the hell it was, but... We were out and he had said to me, well, I'll drive with you at the Nürburgring and then sometime in the year, we'll pick a date and you can drive my Formula Junior. Well, the day Julie arrived at Alton Park, um, which is in Cheshire, England, and he had a Cooper Ford. And the guy, the king of Alton Park was a kid called Keith Francis. And all Richard's, Richard was surrounded by acolytes. They were all really, all these guys thought Richard was wonderful. Oh, wow. And they said, oh, well, David, you know. <coughs> oh, um, Keith will probably just absolutely annihilate you. But, you know, you might get, you might come fourth or fifth, you know, something like that. Uh, well, guess who won the race? Uh, yeah, guy. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So yeah, I won the race, but I had a very lurid slide at a corner called um Nickabrook, which was a fast right-hand sweeper. And apparently, the commentator was going, to, "Oh my God, I've just lost! He's slide, lost. He's sliding down! Oh no, he's got him! He's got him back! Oh my God, he's got it back!" Apparently, Richard and all his friends in the paddock oh my god written my car off but um anyway what well, i want it um so the following year his team was now called a uh, midland racing partnership and they had been given the lola factory formula juniors to drive and they asked me to drive one of three cars richard me and um a guy called bill bradley um because the owner of my car david baker had raced but he was getting he felt he was getting a bit long in the tooth for driving, so he let me drive his car. And they paid me £25 a race. So, um, and I came third in the championship. So, it was it was a good year. It could have been great. I had some... One of the best races of my life was against Denny Holm, who was driving a Formula Junior for Brabham. He was the, he was the worst driver for Brabham. The Brabham BT whatever the hell it was, it'd be about a BT three or four. Was slightly quicker than the Lola. But there wasn't much in it. The Lola was a pretty good car. Anyway, we raced the Silverson race um, in the spring, which was a non-championship Formula One race, of which there was a lot. In um, and everybody came Ferrari. Uh, the whole the, the, the race was full. And the Formula Junior race was a backup race, was a support race, and it had an enormous field. It had like 35 or 40 cars. Anyway, Denny Holm and I, and usually those Formula Junior races were tremendous scrap, you know, because the cars were so evenly matched. They had about 102 horsepower. If you had 103, you were quids in. (laughs) Um, But Denny and I, I mean, we absolutely broke away from the pack. And we had Richard Atwood, Michael Spence, Denny Holmes, Frank Gardner, Paul Hawkins. Um, Apparently anybody that was anybody was in that race. And Denny and I had gone. We were just gone. And I overtook him a couple of times. Then he got me back. But I had it all worked out. And about four laps to go, the gear lever broke off in my hand. The knob came off the gear lever. So I'm left with this little stump about that big. So it took me a lap to get uses, push it for the downshift, you know, for the up. I push it with my thumb, pull it back with my finger. So I dropped back when it, when it originally broke, obviously I dropped back. And on the last lap, I set the lap record and he beat me by about 10 feet. So that was incredibly disappointing because I think I could have won that race, which would have made a hell of a difference in my career at that stage. We're now very early on in my career. Um, but I did get the lap record, and I did come second, and I beat everybody else handily. So, um, and I had uh, another couple of really, really good races in that car. Unfortunately, I never, I never won one. But um, I had another couple of second, and I came third in the championship. Denny Hamlin won the championship, and I came third. So it was a pretty good year. But Richard's friends weren't too appreciative because I was giving Richard a pretty hard time. So the following year, they said, oh, well, we think it's better if we get Tony Maggs. who was a South African who was very good and had done some Formula One. So they got Tony Maggs in. So I just, uh, you know, stumbled on and um, made the best of what I got. And I kept finding drives here and there. And in 64. <clears throat> I came back to the States my first time after the 62, three hour. And I drove here at Road America with a guy called Chris Carp. In the Lotus Cortina in the 500 mile race. I don't know what happened. I don't know where we, I think we finished, but I don't know where. Um, I thought like I could look it up in the record book. But uh, yeah. So I came back here and I drove a bit of everything, you know. I mean, I drove everything. Then in 1968 was my first really, really, really good year. I drove for Gulf for the Ford Gulf DP40.
1: There you go, right there.
2: There you go, right yeah, well done. Right there. And um, <laughs> that, was, that was a good year. And I drove with Paul Hawkins. It would have been a fantastic year. I, I had one win. He and I had one win at, at Monza. We should have won at Watkins Glen. We were a lap ahead of X and um, Lucy and Bianchi in the other car who normally won. Um, they had, a, had a an issue with oil pressure. And he was a lap behind us and the team manager, who uh, had the hots with Jackie Hicks, told me before <laughs> I got it, told me before I got it in my last stint, now look, I want Jackie to win this race. So I expect you to let him catch you up and win the race. And although I tried to drive as slowly as I could, but as fast as I could, and... <coughs> uh, I, um, I wasn't about to piss the team off because it, it was my first ever really, really, really good drive. So I wasn't about to put it to the test. Um, so he won, and uh, we came second. Now, the Gulf hierarchy were all there the, the president, CEO, a bunch of guys from Pittsburgh. But the airport the next day, Elmira International Airport, uh, if you want to call it that. Hawkins and I were there waiting to catch our plane back to New York to, to go back to England and the guys from golf came over to us and said hey we, we didn't think much of that yesterday we didn't think that was right um, so how would a thousand bucks each be so they gave us a thousand dollars in cash which was more than they got paid to do the race so we right. were very happy with that so I'll throw the ball back in your court now any other questions?
0: Um, so oh, your your comment? first year in Formula One was 67, right? You did two races?
2: Yeah. Um, again, my first Formula One race was like my first trip to and my first trip to, because it was a non-championship race at Syracuse in in Sicily. And it was about, I can't remember how long it was, six or seven miles. And it went through the town, it went through the town and out into the oh. countryside. And, and the crowd standing right on the side of the road. I mean, right on the side of the road. Uh, and I came third for Tim Parnell. Um, in a lotus BRM. And it certainly wasn't the best prepared car there. We came third and I was only beaten by the two factory Ferraris of in and Munco and Bandini in the other. So everybody says, oh my god, that's it. You know, you you'll be on everybody's list now. The, the phone won't ring off the hook. Well, guess what? Fucking phone never rang at all. So um I uh I <laughs> and then a, a guy called Bernard White, who was another rich guy, he um he spotted me and he gave me actually that race was sixty six, I think. Wasn't it? Yeah,
0: Yep. Um yep, I'm looking at it. so that was sixty-six.
2: And then I drove for Bernard and then we drove in the British Grand Prix, came eight, um, Canadian brand Grand Prix. I was doing really well and um, I spun it and I had to get out to push the car back to get back in again because I couldn't get reverse. And my visor missed it up. Uh, and then we did, uh, then I did, then he sent me and Mike Halewood off to South Africa to do the Springbok series, which was sports cars. And uh that was a that was a blast. Um, and we won we won uh, three races there. Um, then Bernard White, then I did uh, then I don't think I drove a Formula One car. Oh I, I drove a Honda. I drove the factory Honda in the nineteen sixty eight Italian Grand Prix. And they had two cars, they had their own the V eight air cooled engine car which was a magnesium chassis which was really flexible so you couldn't set the thing up it was very difficult to set up because it's too flexible and they also had the new chassis de- designed and developed for them by John Surtees along with Broadley, Harry Broadley, Roland so they called it the Hondola and it had a V12 air a uh, V12 uh, water crew. so all day Friday and Saturday they made, because in those days there was no qualifying <clears throat> practice would be like three hours and every lap counted so for qualifying so if you did a hell of a lap first thing friday morning that might be polled um, and um, in the v12 ward car which we tested at silverson i broke the lap record which was currently held at the time by chris Amon in a ferrari so i was getting along pretty well with that car. But then when we got to um, Monza, they wanted me to try both cars. So all day Friday and Saturday I'm hopping in from one to the other. And of course they handled just completely differently to each other. And the engine, the V8 air-cooled was incredibly um, no, no, not drivable at all. It had no power it got to about six eight, and it blew up at eight. So, um, it you know, like one of the things about Formula One cars and engines is is the drivability, and it had no drivability at all. It was horrible. <clears throat> so they said eventually, Mister Nakamura, who was the chief engineer and the team manager, said, "Which car do you like to drive, David?" And I said, "The V12." But as I've been chopping and changing, I mean, I Qualified like 15th. And John Sergis in his V12 Honda was on the pole. In the race, I think I got up to about fourth and it dropped a valve. And um, so I was out. And uh, at the Lesmos, which is those two right handers, you go all through the very fast right hander, you know, the um, curve of gravity. Now they go chicane. In those days, you just went straight down to Lesmos. And there were two, uh, two right handers. And the, the guardrail was about four feet in the track. Now it's massive runoff. And Chris Aim had gone off there in a Ferrari and leapt over the guardrail into these trees. And I thought, shit, he's got to be dead. And anyway, a couple of laps later, there's old Chris Aim leaning on the guardrail looking out. <laughs> well, good God, how the hell did he get away with that one? anyway um, and uh, they had me all down to drive for them in 1969 but unfortunately end of 68 they decided to pull the plug on Formula 1 and concentrate on developing the Civic engine for American production uh, low low emissions engine because they wanted to have a low emissions engine without using a catalytic converter so they put all their engineers including Mr Nakamura on developing that Um, so I didn't drive for them in 69 I did drive again in 69 for John Surtees Um, well by then John Surtees had got the Formula 5000 so in 69 I drove for John Surtees in his Formula 5000 which was a Surtees TS5 and he had done a deal with uh, James Garner to run a team over here well John Surtees had a way of making things go wrong um, so that never worked out so I did a few races in Europe and I won his, fir- his first ever event for a 30s I won the race Mondello Park in Ireland which is another long story um, then he decided to send me over here to do the Formula 5000 Championship. unfortunately we didn't come till the Road America event which was race 7 of 14 And I fell out on the first lap. We went on to seven, so we were out. Um, But then, from then on, of the six races left, I won three of them. And I lost the championship by one point to Tony Adamovitz, which was very disappointing. The following year, we came back again. And again, we started late, and I came third. And the following year, Roger Penske asked me to drive the Ferrari 512 with Mark Donahue. Um, And the Indy 500, the Pocono 500, and the Ontario 500. And, uh, but he said, you have to leave Surtees because I'm Goodyear, he's faster. I'll find your team. So he found me, Carl Hogan, uh, in Formula fund. We won the championship in 69. The Ferrari, unfortunately, was the quickest thing out there. We were always quicker than the Gulf. 4917s, and we never won any. Something always went wrong. Mark crashed it twice, which is very unlike him. He had an engine failure at Le Mans. When we had a, we had our, all of Penske's engines were done by Traco in uh, Los Angeles. So he gets his Ferrari engine and didn't have it re, retuned by Traco, and they were fantastically reliable. Well, we get to Le Mans, his Nibs, his lordship, Penske, says, Ferrari have offered us a brand new engine. We'll change the engine. Well, Woody Woodard, the chief mechanic, and Mark Donohue were dead. Dead against that. No, the captain said, we've got to change the engine. Well, we changed the engine. Of course, it blew up at about 7 o'clock at night. Our engine, we lent to another team, and they came third. So, there you go. All very disappointing, but so I didn't have much racing. I have to say, but I have also been extremely lucky. Been married to Margaret for sixty years. Come December, she was my girlfriend on the Lambretta scooter, and she's still my girlfriend today. Um, So I've been very lucky there. I never got hurt, despite Brian Rebbin saying I wasn't fast enough. Um, So I had a pretty, I had a pretty good racing career. Uh, I did win a lot of races. uh, Had a good year in Trans Am in 1983. Won that championship. Um, So, yeah, a lot of things went on and uh, started doing TV in 1976 for CBS. And of course, soon after that, they started doing the the, um, Daytona 500 live. So I was on that first broadcast, which was a massive hit. And incredibly, I mean, for NASCAR, they ought to give Ken Squire (laughs) who really persuaded uh, CBS to go to NASCAR. He said, NASCAR's where it's at. You've got to be there. You've got to do NASCAR. Go to NASCAR. And they did. And, um, uh, I mean, it put NASCAR on the map nationally. It really did. And uh, we did that first race. And then I did 18 Daytona 500s before moving on to uh, Speed Vision, which turned into Speed Channel, which turned into Speed. And we did all the Formula One races for, you know. And then at the end of uh, 2012, um, um, they lost the deal to NBC. So we all thought we'd be out of a job. And then NBC called me up and said, "Hey, we want you to come over here because we've had, unpre- we've never had email uh, about another sports cast like we've had about you and Steve Matches. Everybody wants you to come. So so we did. <laughs> that lasted for five years. And then uh, they, they went back to ESPN and ESPN didn't need anybody because um, they just take the uh, feed from Sky. Yeah. Which actually now belongs to NBC anyway. Oh.
1: The uh, So, you know, obviously the 79 Daytona 500 is that tipping point you know, that everybody talks about. And I can tell I you where I was. Yeah. I was uh, – we had just got into Indianapolis. My dad worked uh, for a guy named Carl Gilhausen. And his son, Spike, drove IndyCars. And, and, yeah, uh, I remember that. Yeah, and uh, they had a little house in Speedway, and uh, we got there. And, uh, man, it's just snowing, you know, it was a big snowstorm. And I'd, I'd go outside and, and shoot baskets for a little bit in the snow. Until my hair would freeze, and I'd come in and thaw out. And I was watching a race, and Richard Petty was my hero driver. Yeah. And I watched the last laps, and you had some crazy finish, and he wins. And uh, you know, you got the fight, and it it really was like this uh, magical moment. Whoa. Somehow, you know, yeah. you know it. And, and like she- you said, yeah. Like and like you were saying, uh, or maybe I've seen it somewhere else, but uh you know the the entire country's snowed in the eastern yeah. seaboard is snowed in right, so I mean they had nothing else to do but to watch that race
2: i mean c b s were very cautious about the whole thing i mean they they spend a lot of money i mean they did a good job they had right production crew and they had good producers and good directors. They had their top baseball um director and uh one of their well their top at the time producer and they um they took it seriously and they did a good job and then people like brock yates did a hundred um, uh, you know um b-rolls oh he went down to see um junior johnson he went to see everybody i mean they had they had hundreds of hours of tape to put in that show and of course never needed any of it hardly None. um and of course that last lap where Kale, and uh, uh, Donny Allison had to, <laughs> they get out and start fighting. Ken's about going hysterical. Um, I'm joining in. And then, of course, Richard comes from way back third and wins. So the crowd are like you and you, Obviously, ecstatic that Richard's won yet another Daytona 500. Right. Meanwhile, Bobby Allison on the slowdown lap gets round to turn three leaps out of the car. He joins in the fight as well. I mean, you couldn't have had a better finish. You couldn't have had a better finish if you tried. And um, and it put NASCAR on the map because, as you said, that snowstorm up north and... Um, it was a magic formula. So, uh, but <laughs> I mean... And I did another... That was 79. I, my last one for them was uh, 96. So, whatever that is. Um, and I went to join uh, Speed Vision that year. and. Mm-hmm. Uh, with uh, actually a guy called um, Roger Warner, started Speed Vision. And he had been the original top man at ESPN for years. And he was mad on Formula One. He got Formula One to, for ESPN way back with Jackie Stewart and um, and uh, John, Christ uh, was his uh, name, doing the commentary. And uh, so he loved Formula One. He had a bit of an in with Bernie accent So as soon as he started speaking, even though ESPN had the rights, he managed to somehow do a deal with Bernie that we could show it again on Monday night. And then within a year, we had the rights. So I've been doing Formula One you know for well, of course, with CBS. I mean, my first Formula One race was 1976 Watkins Glen race um, with Ken. We did Formula One race there. We did Formula One there. We did. Long Beach, two or three times. We did the British Grand Prix two or three times. We went to Dijon. Remember the race where Jacques Lafitte and uh, René Arnoux were banging wheels? No, I've rent. seen highlights.
1: I've seen highlights of um, what you're talking about.
2: Yeah, and uh, we were there for that. And um, we, I had done a deal with CBS. and BM, I was driving for BMW there in, that, in that 320. The day after that race, the Monday, was the three-hour at Daytona Beach, which IMSA had with the Firecracker 400 was on that uh, Sunday, and then the IMSA race was on Monday. So BMW and uh, CBS coughed up for me to come back in Concord from Paris. Oh wow! So we do we do the race? Can I get on a couple of motorbikes in the, on the pillion? We're taken to a little airfield and flown to. Uh, Paris we landed at an airport called Le Bourget which is a little airport we change airports and we get on the Concorde at nine o'clock and we arrive at uh, Washington at about uh, we left at nine and we get there about six hours behind and um, uh, yeah, we got there about six o'clock you know about Three or four hours before you leave, so then I changed airports so and went went to National, what what was then National, to fly down to Dayton. <laughs> Some guy walks in, <laughs> and the race was delayed in 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 America to come on in the afternoon. So it was on from like two till four or two till five. <laughs> so this guy walks in the airport about half past six, in there and there am I was standing. <laughs> he thought. Well, it was a miracle of flight. I mean, shit, you know, I was there like three hours before I left. Um, <laughs> I might as well not bother because the car broke on the Monday anyway. <laughs> but um, So, I don't know whether you guys, uh, what's the time now? I mean, it's, 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 yep, it's getting on time for an hour. So, um, have you got anything else to ask me in particular? Or?
0: One Nothing? thing I w- wanted to Go ahead. talk about talk about um so your first year at Indy 500 1971 was that your first time ever on an oval
2: yes it was and I was a bit daunted by it when I got there um it was once I drove on it and Johnny Rutherford was a tremendous help to me um he he, he became very friendly with me straight away and uh, a lot of the other like AJ Foyt you know hardly ever spoken a word to me ever so um but Rutherford was very friendly and yeah, you know, had a lot of advice. But when I drove there, I realised why people like Jimmy Clark and other Europeans had done well there. Because Indy, I know it's oval, and I know it's banked, but it's a very light bank. It's only like nine degrees or whatever. It is. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like being at Spa. You know, it's just a lot of very, very fast turns. They just all happen to be the same way. They're all just all left-handers. So I could see why a good road racer would do well at um at Indy. And of course, all those poor kids who, just by now the rear engine revolution really, you know, so, so everything was rear engine. Meanwhile, all those poor kids are rushing around on, on the dirt, bank dirt, short tracks. You know, they get to Indy. To them, it was just completely foreign. You know, it's, um, slip slipping and sliding around the tail out and using the, the berm of the clay and all that to get, I mean, you're suddenly on this. Very smooth, flat, super high-speed circuit. Um, not what they used to at all. So the hopes of going from, you know, sprint car at Coin to doing well at Indy were way different to doing well at Spa right. and then doing well at Indy because it, 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 was, it was a fast track. And I could see why those guys were getting very disillusioned and very pissed off because it was not like what they were doing at all.
0: So, you drove obviously in Lamar and also Indy 500. How do you? I've never, I, obviously, I've been to the Indy 500 many times. I've never been to Lamar. It's one race I want to go to. How do you think, like, the pageantry and just the tradition kind of compares between the two? Like, do you think one, like, do you think the 500 is a bigger deal in America or is Lamar a
2: bigger deal in Lamar? Um, well, there's such different cultures. Uh, the pageantry at Le Mans, is there's a bit of pageantry, but it's nothing like Le Mans. I don't know. Indy, race day at Indy is something else. I mean, you know, you, all that pageantry, the, the the bands, the cars, the driver presentation. Now, Le Mans has as many people almost. I mean, there's a couple of hundred thousand people at those grandstands right on start finish. But of course, it's eight and a half miles around, so you, you can get a lot of people in there. A hell of a lot. Um, and, um, and there's, you know, there's a lot of pageantry involved, but it's not quite to the extent of, of Indy. Um and I mean you know, the 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 French and the Brits like to watch the indie five hundred a lot on the T V, they all watch it now because they realize there's all clever stuff. It's not just a case of going left. You know, they used to be very scary, you go, oh well, all you do is turn left it's so easy. But I mean it's not easy, it's very difficult. And of course the car setup is so crucial, you know. A a millimetre difference in ride height can be the difference between being in the race and being four mile an hour off the pace. But Le Mans is a fabulous race to do because it's eight and a half miles. It's high speed. It's about 150 mile an hour, 154 uh, mile an hour lap. And and it's got a lot of variety. So if you're going to do a 24 hour race, that's the place to do it. The Daytona 24 hour, on the other hand, is it's a bit, you're in a luck of the fishbowl. You know, you bollock all the way around that bloody banking. Then you got the chicane, the bus stop. And then you're into the infield and it's all tight stuff. And, um, you know, it's, it's very tiring and very, and of course, nowadays, it's lost a lot of its, um I don't know, it's uh, whatever the 24-hour you expect to have because it's all floodlit. Where's Le Mans? You know, you get out past the pits. You get out past the pits, It's pits bloody dark. Um, mm-hmm. And you've got to use your headlights. I mean, yeah, it's very dark out there. But again, being on the middle weekend in June, it's a very short night in Northern Europe compared to Daytona in uh, January. So, you know, at Le Mans, it, gets, it doesn't get dark until about eleven. And it gets light at about half past four. Hmm. Whereas at Daytona, it gets dark at about six, uh, thirty. And doesn't get light again until about 7.30. So you've got a lot of dark. Now, as I say, that kind of has lost its importance now because it's all flooded anyway. So that kind of spoils it. But the Daytona circuit is definitely... Um, It's pretty wearing. But Le Mans, I just love Mans. those fast sweeping curves. Now I've never driven there since they put the chicanes in my last race at Le Mans was the year before they put the chicanes on the straight. So that adds another, you know, uh, eight serious turns. Um I'd say turn in, turn left, yeah, right, left, left, right, four, two, two chicanes. So and it changes the changes the dynamic a lot with gear shifts braking and all that sort of thing because nowadays the cars are so blooming I mean, reliable you can just drive flat out at them. you don't have to worry about nursing the car anymore. Um, you do have to nurse the driver because there's three of them in my day there's two and you have to nurse the car and nurse yourself When I, mean, I used to put my uniform on on Saturday afternoon and not take it off till Sunday night I mean no question of taking my uniform off and putting another one on I'd never got it on again because I didn't have another one Nowadays, they you know the Audi drivers or <clears throat> they go to their motorhome, which is a gigantic fucking home, like a hotel. <laughs> Some girl takes their uniform, puts it straight in the washing machine, new headcloth, new helmet, new gloves, new shoes, and of course with three of them, you know you can have you can have six or seven hours off. If they right. do, if each of the other guys does a three-hour spin, We used to do four. If they, if they do a four-hour shit you get eight hours
1: off piece of cake <laughs> <laughs> my um uh, my brother uh actually worked at bmw um when you drove there and i think it was 86 he was there oh, yeah. um yeah and he uh he just talked about uh uh just how enjoyed how much he enjoyed working with you know he worked on the car that uh andretti and jones drove but he just talked about how fun you were to be around and how oh, great yeah. it was to go yeah. to dinner with you. And that. And uh, yeah. we actually, cause you had a BMW dealerships in Ohio, correct? I
2: did. No. Yeah. Yeah. Did.
1: Yeah. I had one cause Ohio, we I had,
2: one in, I had one in Houston for a bit.
1: Yeah. We, uh, we actually got a couple from you when they were in Ohio. So oh, did you? Oh. yeah, we were actually even customers, oh, well, um, good. but he, he just talked about how, what a great experience that was. And, uh, uh, you know, and, and what it was like to work with you, and how you were professional, but you had a great time off the track. It was you and yeah. Watson, right? It was you and yeah, was right. it John Watson, yeah,
2: yeah, Watson, yeah. Watson yeah. was not exactly a ball of, not a comedian, uh, <laughs> a bit right. serious. Davy Jones and uh, John Andretti were incredibly sort of deferential to me and John, uh, even though of course they both were very. Davy was very fast, uh, yeah, but erratic. Um, that was one of the most disappointing my last race at Road, here at Road America was 86 in that BMW and we were on the front row the lap one Davy had a huge crash at the kink nearly took out the entire field but luckily flew over the heads of everybody and hit the ground the other side so everybody got through unscathed he started our car and we were up there in the lead And the big, the guy then to beat was Al Holbert with Derek Bell and he in Mm -hmm. that Lowenbrow 962. And I was going up the main straight and right in front of me was Derek Bell in the Lowenbrow car. And I was about to lap him. Going down into turn five, the bloody thing just died. I mean, it just sputtered to a halt. And some wire apparently had come off in the ECU and it had gone to full rich, just like pulling the choke out. So next morning, it just fired up. Boom, just like that. Uh, That was a very disappointing race. Uh, um, I'll never forget it. I mean, we could have won that. That would have been my last trip here and it would have been a perfect end. Um, So,
1: yeah, um,
2: but it wasn't. And what are you going to do about it? I mean, now, of course, all so long ago and I don't, Really give a shit anymore. So, <laughs> right. Matter. Yeah. I mean,
1: he, yeah, he was talking, he was saying the same thing, how disappointing he was. You guys were so fast everywhere you went. and just yeah. only, only got the one win, I think, as a team, as a total team. I think you had the, the one win, I believe.
2: Yeah. Which Davey and John had. Yeah. Then Watchy and I were leading at Portland, easy. And when we made the driver change, he got all tangled up in the seat. <laughs> so we then we went to see his point point. We're leading there, and um, John, uh, Lynn, Saint James was driving that um, Ford. You know the
1: the probe or uh, the brother probe.
2: probe? Yeah. Probe. And I, I don't know whether I think she tried to get, but I think Motti just misjudged it and clipped, her and that was we're out of that. Then we went to Daytona for the final race in November and we ran out of gas. Um, And then it would have been a three year, supposed to be a three year deal. And at the end, through the year, the management of BMW changed up in Montbell, New Jersey, which is where the headquarters is. And an English guy took over. Anyway, he pulled the plug on it. So um, my three year deal ended up being a, a one year deal. And soul von der who was driver Rick Hendrick in that um, GT prototype, you know the Corvette mm-hmm. prototype? Yep. Oh yeah. He said, he said, you guys next year, he said you would have absolutely cleaned up. He said your car was just so much quicker than anybody else's. Um, he said you'd have cleaned up and they pulled out. Well, there you go. Say la vie, as they say in France.
1: That's right. Yeah. <laughs> So what was it like when you um when you went to drive for Penske, you know, uh you hear all the stories about Penske Perfect and, and all this, that and the other. And um uh, of course this was early in, in his racing. And, of course he had obviously been a driver, but this was fairly
2: early in his car owning uh era. Well he was he was Penske perfect now. I mean, he was very <coughs> yeah, very meticulous, and it showed in the cars, I mean that Ferrari five twelve was a as
1: beautiful. Much, like,
2: Oh, my God. It was so different to all the other 512s and so much quicker. I mean, it was just dynamite. And he had great crew, people like Woody Woodard and the other guys there were also tremendous. And, and they all liked working him. I mean, that was the thing, you know, everybody said, oh, but he's difficult to work for. He wasn't difficult to work for at all. He's a piece of cake to work for because you know exactly what he wants. Um,
1: yeah. No agenda, he want- right? He just uh, wants to win. No agenda. He wants to win.
2: He, he just wants to win. And he knows how to do it, and he makes sure that you know how to do it. Um, I mean, he took it, he took issue with my hair. My hair was a bit longer than days. Yeah, uh, but I did resist having it cut. But I <clears throat> used to look. Well, you bit-
1: were you were selling Hager slacks at the time, right? So you couldn't cut your. That's right. Yeah, that's
0: right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Scott's yeah. having the same predicament now with his hair.
1: Yeah, Ooh. I'm. I am. My hair is really long now. Just, oh. but that's because I'm lazy. <laughs>
2: Mine wasn't, mine wasn't that long, but it was longer than he liked. You know, because right. Mark, always, Mark always had a buzz cut and that sort of thing. And, uh, but Mark and I, our times in the car were very, very similar. Um, and we were just quicker than the Porsche 917s, which, of course, suited me just fine because they had not renewed my contract after the 1969 season with the Ford GT40 because Porsche didn't like me for some reason or another. And so... Um, I never drove them, so it gave me a lot of satisfaction the year after. That was in 1970. gave me a lot of satisfaction in 1971 when we were so much quicker than them everywhere we went. Daytona, Sebring. Le Mans was a bit of a toss-up because they had the long tail and we didn't. Um, because Watkins we were I mean, we were gone. Watkins left. The steering post broke. What the hell brought that up? I don't know. It never broke in my hands. <laughs> anyway, yeah. Um, could be cloudy that What's happening? Here. So, um, anything else? You
1: got anything, Aaron? I don't. Um, Scott has a question. He always likes to ask. I always, I always do ask a question, and. Um, my question is it's open ended. It could be anyone. It could be a family member. It could be someone we never even heard of. Um, we always like to give uh, the racers we speak with uh, a chance to talk about someone who influenced their career um, that, you know, that like maybe a person who meant the most to them or maybe a person who uh, behind the scenes that nobody's ever heard of.
2: Well, <laughs> I mean, I've I've been to a lot of people in 70 years of racing and TV. Um, But I suppose the person who had the most influence on me really would be back to my wife, Margaret. Because, (laughs) uh, I mean, she stood by me since she was only 14 when I first started going out with her. And she never once hesitated to not support me in my racing endeavours. Not once. I mean, every time I used to leave the house, with the two, two little kids there, Greg and Guy. Um, and she never once said, you know, I, I just think you ought to stop this, is dangerous, because it was dangerous as hell. Oh, oh yeah. So yeah. she's always been a huge support, and she's always been there. You know, other people have come and gone, and, um, and I've learned a lot from a lot of those other people, but in terms of absolute real support uh, and influence, it would be her.
1: Oh, that's that's great. Yeah. I, and I've said this on the show many times. Uh, the mothers and wives of the drivers play yeah, such a yeah. big role, uh, and I don't care what level of sport you run in; they they're always play such a big role. Um, so I, I think that's great. What do you? Would you have changed? Like, I realize the money's better today. to, yeah. You know, you make more money today. I I get that. But would you have ever wanted to race in a different era than what you ran in? Because you actually got to span the whole really, uh, you know, really a a great portion of the era. Even today, you know, you run into BMWs, run high ground effects cars, that sort of thing.
2: I was very happy with the the deal I was dealt, the hand I was dealt. So um, I can't see it being any better now than it was in my day. I really can't. Well, I'm, I mean it's safer, yeah. Definitely safer. Oh right. But I don't know if it's if it enjoyable. I don't I don't think I'd change a thing really.
1: Well, that's great.
2: Yeah.
1: And uh, I and I've had this conversation with drivers uh, from your era and they all pretty much echo the same thing. The
2: yeah. Same thing. Yeah.
1: Well, David, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure for well, uh, me. me.
2: And then we can we can do the second two thirds of my career another time if you want.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Anytime. Yeah. Anytime.
2: Right. Well, nice to meet you, hope, Aaron, yep. Scott. Thanks very much for having me on. And uh, uh, we'll see you again sometime, I hope. Yep. Thank you, Oh, David. absolutely. We'll definitely Thanks, see man. each other
1: again. Thank you.
2: Okay. Thank you.